querying a search index for objects similar to a given object is a common problem. A user who has just read a great news article might want to read other articles similar to it. A user who has just taken a picture of a dog might want to search for dog photos similar to that picture. In both of these cases, the query object is turned into a vector and compared to the vectors representing the objects in the search index. Facebook contains a lot of news articles and a lot of dog pictures. How do you index and query all that information efficiently? Much of that data is unlabeled. How can you use deep learning to classify entities and add more richness to the vectors? Jeff Johnson is an engineer at Facebook. He joins the show to discuss how similarity search works at scale, including how to represent that data and the trade-offs of this kind of search across speed, memory, usage, and accuracy. Jeff Johnson is a research engineer at Facebook. Jeff, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Uh, hello. So today we're talking about similarity search and specifically where that applies to images and videos and how you do that at scale. Before we get into that, explain what similarity search is. So the basic idea behind similarity search is that there are a lot of like real world entities, you know, that humans can interpret like reasonably well. You know, for instance, paragraphs of text or sentences or fragments of audio or, you know, like images or videos. And humans have like kind of like an intuitive sense of, you know, what, you know, pieces of text are actually similar to each other in terms of meaning, you know, not just in word content or what images are similar to each other in terms of meaning or, you know, visual features or, you know, such things. You know, of course, with uh, like, you know, say traditional database systems, you know, a machine is rather mechanically, you know, comparing the, you know, similarity of, you know, say like, you know, fragments of text or like, you know, distance, you know, sort of like, you know, just based on like, you know, raw, you know, like pixel difference or, you know, things like that. Your machines are, you know, reasonably good at that. But what's definitely more complicated for machines to do is to try to, take some of that like human sense of, you know, what images are similar to each other visually, you know, what pieces of text, you know, like mean something similar and, you know, like perform, you know, checking based on distances to find, you know, like similar kinds of content to, you know, something that you're interested in. So similar, similarity search is, you know, basically a mechanism, you know, that is used in conjunction with, you know, systems which can come from like machine learning or AI or like, you know, whatever, you know, which generate these, you know, kind of like representations of, you know, what an image means or what a fragment of text means. And then you can use, you know, similar research techniques to sort of find like, you know, similar, you know, pieces of content to that. When we're talking about user level applications or developer services, you know, internal services at Google, or I'm sorry, at Facebook, where, like, where would a similarity search mechanism be useful? Like, what kinds of, if I'm building an application at Facebook, or if I'm a user, where would this, this uh, ability to be able to search images that are similar to other images be useful? It would certainly be useful in terms of, you know, trying to detect, you know, say, spam, like in forms of images that people, you know, like are uploading, you know, it's also useful, you know, for say, you know, like you get like recommendations in your newsfeed in terms of, you know, pages you might like or other videos that you, you know, may potentially want to watch. You know, some of those are based on like embeddings of, you know, what the pages represent, which we can get into later. You know, things like, you know, product recommendations, if you're, you know, browsing like a marketplace of items, you know, finding things that we think you are similar to, you know, things that you've like looked at, you know, before. So it's not really just about like, you know, images or video. It's it's really about, you know, sort of like assigning similarity to like real world, you know, like concepts and things. Okay. So I guess, I mean, I understand that was uh, the, that, you know, if you took like an article and you wanted to find articles that were similar to it, you know, that's certainly an application of similarity search that I understand. I, I thought that the, the paper that I read was mostly about similarity search across uh, images and, and video. Was I, was I mistaken or is, or, or is this, are we talking about the, the span of kind of all entities? So the, the, paper, the paper that I worked on uh, with my colleagues who are in uh, Facebook AI Research Paris, Matthias Duz and uh, Hervé Jigou, you know, that was, you know, based, like the similarity search is basically like a technique. We applied it in that paper to like images because some of the largest, actually the largest publicly available, you know, databases, you know, containing like these high dimensional vectors that you use similarity search on 
happen to be of images. You know, so for purposes of you know publishing in the research world, you want to present results on publicly available data sets. You can present your numbers, and other people can try out you know like similar things. You know, but the concept, you know, like as is generally applied, you know, works equally well for, you know, text and, you know, like many other entities. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so like at Facebook, it's, you know, like it's it's probably, you know, like finds, you know, like more current use, you know, for, you know, fragments of text or, you know, concepts like, you know, like people, you know, like you may know or, you know, pages you may be, you know, interested in or products you may be interested in you know, than, than so much, you know, constantly, you know, comparing like, you know, videos for search, even though we are, you know, like using that as well. I think of search as building an index from a data set and then building a way to query that structured index. Describe each of those parts of search as it applies to similarity search, just at a high level, and then we'll get into the, the nitty gritty details. Sure. The first thing is that you need a system to actually, you know, generate the representation that you are going to index. For similarity search, you, you know, similarity search works on mathematical vectors, you know, sort of like high dimensional vectors, you know, imagine like a list of like say 100 floating point numbers that represents a point in a 100 dimensional space. Uh, we can get into like how those are actually, you know, constructed from images or fragments of text uh, like later on. Now, the problem with, you know, like these high dimensional vectors is, you know, the so-called cursive dimensionality. If you think about, say, like in two dimensions or three dimensions, if you want to find like nearest neighbors to like a particular point, there are a lot of like classical techniques, you know, for doing that thing, you know, many of which, you know, find a lot of use, you know, say in uh, like, you know, video games, you know, for like, you know, graphics or physics, you have like binary space partitioning trees, you have like, you know, KD trees, you have, you know, like you know, typical techniques to kind of like, you know, divide and conquer and be able to quickly find, you know, given a point in like 2D or 3D space, what the like nearest points like around that are, you know, but this typical concept, you know, definitely breaks down when you begin talking about a hundred dimensions or a thousand dimensions. If you think about like high dimensional spaces, like a square has, you know, like four, you know, sort of like line segment faces, a cube has six, you know, two dimensional faces, a four cube has eight, three-dimensional cases, you know, get all the way up, you know, talking about like a hundred dimensional, like hypercube, you have like 200 faces, each with 99 dimensions on either side. So like, if you wanted to do something like a binary space partitioning tree, if you wanted to, you know, say like, okay, I'm going to put a hyperplane in the space and try to, you know, put all the points either on one side or the other side of the hyperplane, your nearest neighbor almost likely will lie, you know, could very well lie on both sides of, you know, that space. So, you know, the, high, the typical like high dimensional technique, which works like pretty well up for, you know, like up to like 10 dimensions or 20 dimensions is the uh, so-called KD tree. But that definitely like breaks down. It'd be like way, you know, to actually index and use like a KD tree for these high dimensional vectors, you would spend more time, you know, traversing the index than it really would be just doing like a brute force comparison. So this is where like similarity search, you know, comes in. So there are a variety of techniques doing this. You know, one that's been, you know, like pretty popular for the past like 15 or 20 years is this thing called locality sensitive hashing, which we can get into in detail if you want. But much, much of the stuff that we're concerned with is uh, has like a, you know, like a geometrical interpretation to it. It's called this uh, product quantization thing. And what we do is we, you know, take these high dimensional vectors. They're very big to deal with, but we sort of like, you know, break them down and partition them into different buckets and we sort of like, you know, compress them. And we build, you know, sort of like a two-level index of this. And then, you know, given, you know, some like query point in this like high-dimensional space, there's a mechanism that you can kind of like, you know, go in and, you know, find like which bucket we think or which buckets your like nearest neighbors may be. And then you do kind of like a quick scan over, you know, the vectors, you know, which we think or potentially contain your nearest neighbor. Yes. Okay. So I want to zoom back a little bit for people who are less familiar with this space there is this concept of turning things into vectors and then doing similarity calculations on this and this is not as complicated as it as it might sound to some people like i took a class uh in college it's really stayed with me where you know i'd say the most fundamental thing that we learned in the class is it was about information retrieval but the fun, most fundamental thing i learned was you know you could take basically any document, turn it into a vector, just a, uh, a kind of a measurement of, for example, the frequency of words that appear in that document, 
And then you can use those numerical representations to apply mathematics to things that don't seem like they could be mathematically uh, calculated at first. You know, like a you know, if you take a a news article and you want to find all the uh, all the articles that are related to it, that's going to seem like magic before you kind of lo- learn a little bit about vectorization. And then you learn about the types of similarity measurements you can do. Like if you th- just think about a article, if you can turn that article into what is an arrow in vector space, then you can perform similarity measurements across how that vector intersects with other vectors. And then you so then you start to be able to use things like cosine similarity and do these uh, geometric similarity measurements. And then it you know then it becomes less mysterious maybe you could give give a little bit of a kind of overview of those kinds of strategies and why those are fundamental to this this conversation yeah certainly there are a bunch of you know sort of like concepts of like similarity measurement that you can think about probably one of the simplest things is not actually you know say like generating you know like a vector description of something but just you know generating a number like you know imagine you take one piece of text and you take another piece of text and you look at sort of the, you know, like the the overlap or the intersection in terms of, you know, like what words are, you know, sort of common things like, you know, jacquard similarity or whatnot, you know, like, will you know, sort of like produce a number, which tell you, you know, kind of like the overlap of that. But what we're really interested in here is not just, you know, sort of, sort of like a, a raw mechanical, you know, description of how much overlap there is, you know, like between, you know, say like fragments of text or like, you know, like you take an image and then you, you know, like put like, you know, something in it, you draw something in it. Well, like most of the pixels in the image are still be like relatively the same, except for the one little area. If you were to just, you know, subtract the difference between the two pixels of, you know, like all of both images, uh, you know, there would still be like, you know, relatively like reasonable, but this becomes you know, more complicated when we're really interested in about concepts. So one of the things that, you know, has been really, you know, popular with the explosion of, you know, like artificial intelligence like, you know, deep learning techniques and things like that are, you know, now we have other ways, you know, f- to have a computer sort of like distill down its idea of, you know, like what real world content is. If, uh, you know, many of your listeners, you know, may have heard about, you know, so-called convolutional neural networks lately. Well, like a convolutional neural network, you know, is used a lot, you know, to determine, you know, say like, you know, take an image, you know, like, is there a dog in this image or is there a cat in this image? you know, it's able to sort of like, you know, classify based upon like high level human concepts because it's trained to sort of like, you know, recognize, you know, which images have cats, which images have dogs, that sort of thing. But what all of these networks really do is they're taking an input, which is a very, you know, big picture, you know, if you imagine, say like 640 by 480 pixels, by you know, by like RGB, you know, say like three bytes per pixel, you know, like you can view that as a vector. It's a super, super high dimensional vector. But what if you were to run that through a convolutional neural network, it kind of like distills down to like a much smaller representation, you know, say like a thousand dimensional representation, you know, which is kind of like the essence, uh, you know, I think that, you know, some people have, you know, turned this kind of thing like a thought vector. It's kind of like a, a distilled representation and like this high dimensional space of, you know, say like what this image like represents. Uh, you can do similar things with, you know, text. Like, the, you know, there are techniques, if you may have heard of, you know, something called uh, word to vec you know, which is like in a way to build these so-called like embedding vectors from like fragments of text. You know, these are other, you know, techniques that have been used a lot, you know, recently in like the machine learning community. You know, if you, if you sort of like, you know, take, you know, say uh, sentences and you look at sort of like the co-occurrence of, you know, like certain words and like, you know, the sentences and based on, you know, like you, you scan like a bunch of text and like words, which, you know, say like tend to co-occur in similar context, you sort of like push them closer together in high dimensional space and words, which, you know, have nothing to do with each other. You tend to like, you know, push them apart. If you do this kind of thing, like many, many times, you, you kind of wind up with this like high dimensional representation of what words mean. You know, there are interesting things where people have done with like word to vec style models where you can take, you know, a vector representation, say for the word king, and you take a vector representation for the word man and woman, if you take, you know, like king minus man plus woman, would that the, the point that that gives you actually happens to be, you know, relatively close to, you know, say the word queen, you know, so these high dimensional spaces, you know, do actually 
encapsulate, you know, some notion of meaning, you know, for this. Well, I was going to ask for, you know, this is not directly related to what we're talking about, but I've heard word to vec discussed in a number of different interviews I've done. And I, this is something I'm still not super clear on. Explain what word to vec is. It's a, it's a means of, you know, like, I, as I said, it's, you know, like you take, you know, fragments of text you take, you know, sort of like, you know, combinations of words in that text and based upon, you know, like the, the context in which those words occur, you're either, you know, you, you start off with, you know, like, you know, say like words assigned to kind of like random positions and like high dimensional space. And you're either, you know, based upon, you know, the way that you see, you know, these words occur, you're either, you know, like iteratively, you know, pushing together or pulling apart, you know, like these, you know, vector points in like high dimensional space, mm-hmm. you know, based upon, you know, things that you encounter. It's, you know, like there are lots of ways, you know, to decide how you want to, you know, like what this context of, you know, like sentences is, you know, like how much you want to push them together, you know, like push them apart, you know, that sort of thing, you know, but it's, it's basically an idea that you, you look at, you know, like lots of different ways in which, you know, like these things, these words occur in the real world and you, you know, like do all these iterative steps to kind of like, you know, push around, you know, like these thing, these uh, vectors, and eventually you wind up with, you know, similar concepts, uh, you know, together in, you know, like high dimensional space and, you know, concepts which are not similar, you know, like further apart. So it's a library for doing text, kind of turning text into vectors so that you can do calculations, machine learning stuff on top of that. Effectively, yeah. Okay. All right. Well, okay. So now we've kind of given people an overview for how we turn information into vectors. So as far as images or video, you mentioned this curse of, what is it? Curse of dimensionality. Is that what you said? Yes. So so what do you mean by, I think that kind of gives us an impression for why this is actually a really hard problem is the, the number of dimensions that a vector can have. If you turn an, an image into a vector to accurately represent it, you might need a lot of dimensions. But explain kind of what that term dimensions is referring to and why these images have so many dimensions. So the dimensions, uh, you know, it's the same concept that you have of, you know, say a piece of paper, you know, is sort of like a two-dimensional space. You know, like you can draw on it, you know, like you can move up or down or left or right. Three dimensions, you know, it's the real world, you know, like you can you know, like go around in like two dimensions and also up and down. It's the same concept, you know, like four dimensions, you know, like you could, you know, like in real world, we could add time as like a fourth dimension we could think of. You can continue this process, you know, it's kind of like a mathematical notion of, you know, like what a dimension is. And you can, you know, think about like 50 dimensional spaces or 100 dimensional spaces. You know, if you want to see what that actually looks like on paper, if you were to say like write down 50 different numbers, you know, say like one, three, seven, minus one, you know, like whatever, that, you know, kind of defines a point in a, like a 50 dimensional space. This is a, you know, like this is a vector. It's basically just a list of numbers that are coordinates, you know, like for some point in a high dimensional space. Mm-hmm. So, you know, like these machine learning processes that we've, you know, like talked about at the end, they're spitting out, you know, say like hundred numbers or a thousand numbers, which is this, you know, kind of like abstract representation of this piece of content in a high dimensional space. Mm-hmm. So, you know, then the problem is that, well, you know, given like a particular piece of content, like what are other pieces of content that, you know, are, you know, that happen to be like relatively close by in terms of that representation, meaning that they are similar in some notion you know, what the, whatever the machine learning, you know, process happened to do with it, you know, it has some notion of like, you know, what's similar or what's dissimilar. Mm-hmm. So, you know, given a point, you know, like, you know, given, given say like a list of a hundred numbers, uh, which is a point, you know, like, which is a representation of an image. And then given, you know, say like a set of a billion other images, how do you find, you know, say like your 10 nearest neighbors? Yeah. Right. So I get that. I get that you want to do nearest neighbor, K nearest neighbor. By, for, by the way, for people who don't know, an abbreviated dumbed down explanation of K nearest neighbor is you take a vector and you have a large set of other vectors and you set K. Let's say you want to do a K equals three and you want to find the three nearest neighbors. You want to cluster all of the, you can cluster all of this data into kind of a, a vector and then the three nearest neighbors to it. I'm that I might be bastardizing that explanation, but 
so I understand why you want to do that in similarity search because you know if somebody enters a query for you know let's say their query is is an image of a cat you want to be able to return the the k nearest like let's say you're going to have 10 search results you want to in, you want to return the 10 nearest neighbors that are similar to that cat picture uh, so I understand why you need to do k nearest neighbor algorithms across this data set but there's also the classification step so you have a a step of classifying these vectors somehow or for some reason I, I'm not quite clear on that so so Maybe you could give any more color on the k-nearest neighbor question that you want to, and then explain why classification is relevant here. Uh, class like I guess uh, classification, and you know, like what sense are you talking about? Is building the index, or uh, well, I just remember re- I mean, I read about it in the paper, but I didn't quite understand what what was being referred to. So there was like basically a part of the paper where it said, okay, there's two main steps. Oh, actually, this was not the paper. This was like the more digestible <laughs> blog post about the paper. Uh, but it was like, there's two steps we need to do, classification and k-nearest neighbor. And I didn't quite get why classification was relevant. I like I, th- I think I remember the the blog post. The, like the classification, you know, like may have been, I don't know if it was uh, discussing, you know, say, you know, the kinds of things that you do with, you know, like say convolutional neural networks and images and determining if this image contains a cat or a dog or, you know, something like that. I mean, is that is that helpful? Do you would you run all these vectors, all these images through, you know, some sort of system that would say, okay, this has a ninety uh, percent probability of being a cat picture, and then that that classification can be added, like that probabilistic classification can be added to this piece of data, and then that's helpful when you're doing the k nearest neighbor algorithm. So the the classification, you know, like it, I guess if. You know, like we're th- if we're thinking about the same thing, um, you know, say you took this network, you know, which classifies, you know, like some whether something is a cat or a dog or whatnot, and you chopped off that last little bit. We don't actually care whether something is a cat or is a dog. You know, we care about, say, like what high level features made the network think that, you know, in combination, this picture has a cat or this p- picture has a dog. You know, sort of, sort of like a little more like abstract, you know, like, you know, from that. So the network, you know, may have been originally designed for like category classification, you know, like, is this a cat? Is this a dog? You know, like whatever. But in the act of doing so, it's kind of like generating for itself these like high level descriptions, which are these like high dimensional vectors of, you know, like what is actually, you know, contained inside Mm -hmm. this picture. Okay. So, you, you know, like you kind of like cut off the head of, you know, like, you, you can take one of these classification networks and you sort of like, you know, cut off the head of you know, like <laughs> what's, what's inside of it. You know, th- this may have been like the blog post. You, you, you can imagine that in a typical database, you have like actual, you know, say like a SQL database or something. You have actual fields, you know, where someone has gone in and said like, this is a cat, you know, that's a black cat, you know, like it's a black cat, uh, you know, that's, you know, like 20 inches long or something like that. Those are a bunch of, and you can sort of query you know, based on, you know, combinations of, you know, like those fields. In our case, what we're looking for is, you know, maybe, uh, you know, like, well, we're looking for pictures of cats, but we're looking for pictures of cats, which are very similar to this very cute black cat, you know, that I have in this one particular picture. Hmm. Well, the network itself was not, you know, trained on, you know, like, you know, was not trained on, being able, you know, necessarily being able to categorize like, you know, exactly similar cats. It was claimed, it, it was trained on being able to, you know, classify, you know, this thing is a cat versus not a cat. But you mm. know, like internally, it still has this kind of like high level representation of, you know, like what's actually in the image. And we sort of more, like, you know, take more dense representation. Yeah, it's a, you know, like it, it contains, you know, many things about, you know, say like, you know, tech visual textures, which might be in the image, you know, like where things are located in the image, you know, that, that mm. sort of thing, uh, mm. you know, these networks can generate that. Right. Okay. So is this kind of like the layers, like different layers of a convolutional neural network can, can present numeric representations of different aspects? Like you're talking about textures. I think of textures as a little bit higher up the neural network or further down the neural network pathway from like edge detection like first you know the earliest layers of a a cnn you would have edge detection and then the edges would might abstract into textures and then those textures could be something you would represent in a vector that would be applicable to higher level 
stuff in the CNN, but also it's just it's just useful if you if you're if you just want to build a really high dimensional vector to later on do uh, nearest neighbor on. Is that is that accurate? Yeah, I mean, it, it really what you mentioned, you know, individual layers in the network at each layer, you know, there's a mathematical description, you know, sort of like this high dimensional vector that is, you know, what it thinks this, you know, like say image is, you know, like low down in the network, you know, some of the early layers, you know, they're very like low level features, you know, the low level features in a confnet, you know, tend to be tend to look like things like, you know, like edge detectors and things like that, say like oriented edge detectors. If you were to take that as like a high dimensional representation, you know, like, and it is, you know, giving you, you know, it's spitting out a list of numbers and passing the, that list of numbers to the next stage, you know, that's like a very low level description of that. But we're interested right. in kind of like higher level descriptions, you know, mm-hmm. not like, oh, there, there happen to be a bunch of, you know, like diagonal lines, like in the image. We're interested <laughs> in, you know, well, this thing looks like cat fur, not like dog fur, you know, say. So, you know, the higher, the higher up you go in the network, you know, the, deep, the deeper and deeper that you go, you know, these individual layers are, are spitting out like, you know, kind of more higher level, you know, descriptions of an image, you know, things which in kind of like a weird way, you know, might actually correspond to the way that, you know, humans, you know, like tend to think about, you know, the world. Yeah, that's quite interesting because so that's to say that at each of these layers of the convolutional neural network, you could have kind of more, I don't know if it's the right word, but a little more granularity or different degrees of granularity in terms of how you're looking at this overall image. And, you know, I could imagine if you really wanted to get super accurate, well, I don't know. So like if I'm doing K-nearest neighbor, is it going to be more accurate if I'm taking into account the vector representations of all of the different layers of a convolutional neural network? Or is there some sort of diminishing returns? You know, should I just be using the, you know, the the kind of layer where you're talking about like the, uh, the I don't know, the f- more fuzzier or the, the higher level contours of this image? Are there, di- are there diminishing returns or am I always going to get more accuracy if I'm using more data from different layers? Well, it's, you know, like the idea is kind of like what, what is your notion of like similarity? There's some kind of, uh, mm. I guess, like co-design, which has to like happen here, you know, like a, you know, it's sort of like a garbage in garbage out thing. Um, you, you know, like it, it's, it's unclear, you know, say like, you know, what kind of, you know, confnet you would actually want to extract like visual features from an image. You might have to try a bunch of experiments. You might have to try like say, deeper layers or shallower layers in the network to kind of see, you know, like whether it's, you know, spitting out something that when you go through this K-nearest neighbor process, you know, gives you, you know, what you want when you're asked for like a picture that's similar to this like really cute black cat. Mm. Um, you know, so it's, you know, like it, it's not like that necessarily the case that more data is like always good. You know, right, okay. So, so I th- kind of, you know, like I meaningless. Think, yeah, I think I have a good a good example. So like those kinds of pictures where you have like blueberry muffins or or what is it blueberry muffins are a kind of dog you know you see these memes where it's like the 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 neural network like can't tell the difference between like legs and hot dogs or poodles and and blueberry muffins you know what i'm talking about yeah 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 so like those i guess you know you, okay do you you know maybe in some cases you you know you should these should the the you know the the similarity algorithm should be identifying these as similar because like okay they kind of do look similar if if that's you know your metric uh, is just like okay this kind this dog looks like a blueberry muffin if you squint but if you're actually trying to detect you know is this a dog or is this a blueberry muffin you know you would and if that's your kind of the way that you're looking at the uh, the similarity then you know you, for each of these different perspectives that you want your your similarity mechanism to have you would want i guess different layers uh, or different um st- uh, yeah different layers to be to be stressed to be emphasized in that that similarity mechanism is that accurate well like i i guess you know like you mentioned something you know a lot of people have done work on this you know so-called like adversarial examples for like a network like, you know, I could take a picture of a cat and I could sort of like tweak that picture of a cat in very unperceptible ways, you know, that before it thought this was a 90% chance that this, you know, picture was a cat. And now it thinks it's a 90%, you know, chance that this, you know, like picture was a dog, even though to a human, it still like looks like a cat. 
you know, these, I mean, to some extent, you know, like some of these are like, you know, contrived examples where you are actually looking at the mathematics of the network and you're sort of like pushing this image in the direction that it would begin, you know, thinking it's, it's a dog, you know, it's taking like all of these real world concepts of cat and dog and whatnot and sort of like shove them, shoving them all together and trying to build sort of like a map in this like, you know, hundred dimensional or a thousand dimensional space. And if you just make like little moves in that hundred dimensional or a thousand dimensional space, you might, you know, like jump over a cat to dog to a giraffe, you know, like to, to whatever, um, you know, the idea is that, you know, still like on average, looking at things in the real world, you know, like it's going to give you, you know, say like, Hey, this is a reasonable chance that, you know, like this is a cat. It's not going to work, you know, say like 99% of the time or hundred percent of the time, you know, if we had a system that could do that, you know, that is basically, you know, what AI like really is, but you know, like, unfortunately, you know, like all of these systems, you know, like they work reasonably well, but they, you know, don't work at, you know, sort of like, you know, human level, you know, like accuracy for these things. So let's get into some of the scalability systems design questions because I think we've we've kind of outlined what this problem is. So you mentioned that the traditional SQL representations, if you're trying to represent these these vectors, these high dimensional vectors accurately, traditional SQL representations are probably not the best data structure to use. So why don't you explain why that is and what representation or database you want to use for this problem set? You know, like there is geometric data that, you know, people are indexing today in databases, you know, say, you know, like GIS, you know, like databases, you know, which may contain, you know, 2D or 3D information, like, you know, things like maps or, you know, positions of, you know, things, you know, like on the surface surface of the earth, you know, that sort of thing. A lot of, you know, traditional databases, you know, like have, index types which are built around this, you know, like one sort of like classical index type, you know, for instance, is a, uh, is a quad tree. You know, you take your points and you begin, you know, sticking in like, you know, vertical lines or horizontal lines and sort of, you know, build a tree by like, you know, partitioning things, you know, like everything that's on the left side of this line, you know, goes in one branch of the tree, everything on, you know, the right side of this line, you know, goes in another branch of the tree. You know, those kinds of like indices, you know, work very well, you know, for like two dimensions, three dimensions, you know, like on up, uh, you know, the extension of, you know, a, a quad tree is a, you know, kind of like a so-called, you know, KD tree. Uh, you can, you know, begin inserting, you know, planes in like higher dimensions. This technique works really well up into about, probably about like, you know, 20 dimensions or so. But that's where this, you know, kind of like, you know, cursive dimensionality, you know, thing comes up. And I believe actually like some SQL databases, you know, do have, you know, what are effectively these uh, KD tree indexes that you can actually use on, you know, sort of like high dimensional data. But as you, as you add, begin adding like more and more dimensions, like every line or every attempt to sort of like split the data set into two and kind of like, you know, subdivide, you know, the problem is that your nearest neighbor, if you, you know, say like, you know, take a plane and some space, your nearest neighbor it's 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 probably fairly likely your nearest neighbor will lie happen to be like on either side of like a particular plane you know this is the the cursive dimensionality you know like as i think i mentioned like a while ago that a you know a square has you know like four sides to it a cube has six sides to it but a hundred dimensional hypercube has you know 299 dimensional sides on it you know like chances are you'll have to check like you know most of those so, you know, this kind of like, you know, brute force, well, I, I guess this kind of like divide and conquer scheme, you know, really does not work well in high dimensions, mm-hmm. you know, so there's always brute force search. You can always, you know, like go down, you know, if you want to find uh, your nearest neighbor among, you know, say like billion, you know, billion vectors, you can always like brute force it, you know, but you want to build something that you can perform queries, you know, like relatively fast. And the way that people get around this is by throwing out the idea of that this query is exact, you know, being okay with the idea that this query is actually approximate, you know, say like 80% of the time, I'm going to return you your true nearest neighbor. You might occasionally miss your nearest neighbor, but, you know, given that the input to this, you know, the similarity search input, you know, these high dimensional vectors are kind of this, you know, fuzzy abstract concept anyways, you know, chances are you may not actually be missing that much you know, by, you know, not actually giving you your true nearest neighbor. Mm. I'd like to frame this problem a, a little bit more in, in terms of the 
the two steps of a search engine, which is building the index and serving queries from the index. So let's just talk about building that index. Can you talk a little bit more about the engineering behind building an index with, for high-dimensional vectors? Like, where do we want to keep this data? Are we going to keep it on disk? Are we going to keep it in memory? What kinds of processing capacity do we need? Kind of what are the distributed systems problems? Could you just kind of pull on that thread a little bit? Sure. So the way, you know, like like later on we can go into detail about, you know, what our index actually looks like. But, you know, like we use this technique that you can read about in our paper, like, uh, you know, perhaps look in our blog post that's called, uh, you know, sort of like an inverted file with uh, using uh, product quantization. But the basic idea is that it is trying to like partition the data set. So I have a billion vectors. You're trying to, you know, divide up those billion vectors into, you know, say like a million different buckets. So each bucket has like a thousand vectors. And then, you know, but the thing is like, if you think like a billion vectors, uh, well, originally these were, you know, say like single precision floating point numbers, you know, say like four bytes each. And, you know, there happened to be like a hundred dimensions. So that, that would be, you know, say like 400, uh, that would be 400 gigabytes of data to actually, you know, store like the raw, you know, like database. You know, like this is, this is, you know, like definitely a lot of data that, you know, can barely, you know, can hardly fit, you know, say like in memory on like a single machine, you know, like is even kind of like hard to, you know, manage on, on disk and whatnot. So, you know, like because we're okay with like approximate lookup, what we try to do is actually compress these vectors. So we don't need, you know, like every vector, as I said, for where 100 dimensions, you know, four bytes per dimension, we don't, we maybe don't need, you know, like 400 bytes, you know, like per vector. We may be able to get around, get away with, you know, 20 bytes per vector or 40 bytes per vector. So we, we take the vectors and we compress them in a way that we can kind of approximately reconstruct what the original vector was, you know, but it's kind of like a lossless, you know, if you think about like, you know, JPEG or image compression schemes, you know, this is kind of like a lossy, you know, compression scheme, you know, like for, for these high dimensional vectors. So we compress all the vectors and we put them into like a bunch of like different buckets. And then when you want to, in those buckets, are kind of like all clustered around different points in this like high dimensional space. So if you have a vector that you're interested in finding the nearest neighbor, yeah, if you have a point in this high dimensional space you're interested in finding the nearest neighbors for, you first find what are the closest buckets that this point, you know, like may lie in. And then for those buckets, you scan, you know, say like all of these, you know, compressed vectors, you know, to get a, to get a sense of, you know, what your actual like, you know, nearest neighbors, you know, could be. So uh, this is something that you, you can put this on, you know, like you can put this on disk, you know, but there's, you know, like a, if you want this, you know, to, you know, process at reasonably interactive rates, because there's still like a reasonable amount of like brute force, you know, searching that you do, like for each bucket, you know, as I said, if you had a million buckets, you know, a thousand vectors per bucket, every bucket that you visit, you know, like your your brute force scanning, you know, like a thousand vectors, you know, kind of like comparing to find out what your nearest uh, like neighbor is. There's still like a, a lot of brute force scanning, you know, that's occurring, you know, like le- way more than say would be the case with a typical relational database where you're just, you know, like traversing an index and you're only, you know, sort of like hitting, you know, like a relatively, you know, small number of rows or things in this index. We're definitely scanning like a lot more data, like, you know, when we, you know, try to look up uh, a particular entry. So, you know, this is a good reason to kind of like, you know, try to keep this thing in memory. And, uh, and given the, you know, compression of the vectors that actually, you know, allows us to sort of like, you know, compress, you know, what originally would have taken 400 gigabytes into something, you know, which could take, you know, say like, you know, 10 gigabytes and could, you know, like reasonably fit into memory. Does it become too costly in any way to keep it all in memory? Actually, well, I know this is a relevant question because there are three metrics of interest that you explored here, which was speed, memory usage, and accuracy. How do these three things trade off against each other? So, you know, like the accuracy is definitely related to, you know, like where I was talking about these buckets that you have to visit, it's definitely related to how many buckets that you want to visit. And it's also related to how compressed uh, like these vectors are. But if you, you know, like imagine if you were to compress the vectors less, that means that they would take more memory, you know, whether on disk or, 
or more storage, whether on disk or in memory. But, you know, like the actual query against them uh, would be more accurate because you have a more accurate representation of what the original vector was. But because they are like less compressed, you know, there's kind of like more data that you have to go through and more calculations that you're going through. So it would sort of like, you know, take more time. So there's kind of like, you know, like a three-way trade-off, you know, between how fast you want to look up to be, how accurate is that lookup, and, you know, like how much memory your overall, like, you know, database is using. You know, like a lot of these trade-offs, you know, come in different ways of actually like building this index or say like, you know, compressing these vectors. And there are, you know, tons of different techniques, you know, like for doing that, you know, but for certain applications, you may care more about accuracy than anything else. So you may not actually want to compress the vectors at all, but you still want to build some sort of index around them. You know, for other applications, you may want to be able to get like a result in, you know, say 100 microseconds. In this case, you really need to sort of like, you know, touch as little memory as possible and do as few uh, calculations as possible. But you're definitely going to, you know, potentially suffer in accuracy a lot as a result. Now, how, how consistent is this? If I query the index twice, do I get the same responses? Yeah. I mean, the calculations are like deterministic. It's not you know, it's not being like random or, you know, but what, what is, you know, potentially not deterministic is if you were to rebuild the index with like new data, you know, the way in which it comes up with these like quantization schemes to, to compress the data, you know, may be different. So the results that, you know, you get then if you had, you know, say like a database that would dynamically update and like, you know, recompress the data, you know, that sort of thing, you could change over time, but, you know, given like a fixed, like index that you've built, you know, like it will give you the same results uh, every time. Okay, so I I know you've kind of alluded to this and, and talked about it a little bit, but can you just explain once again the process of serving a query? So one one reason, you know, like so I you know like worked on an implementation which actually uses GPUs or you know graphics processing units, and one reason it works out like pretty well for that is we need to perform a lot of like mathematical calculations, you know, like in, in finding, you know, like nearest neighbors. So like if you think about a way to sort of like look up brute force like nearest neighbors, you know, given a vector and then given a bunch of other vectors you're comparing it against, you know, like one way of doing that is by doing like a matrix vector multiplication. And then, you know, kind of like, you know, taking like the top, you know, the 10 highest you know, like results from that. You know, what works even better is if you actually have a batch of queries, you know, say like, and, and I'm not just, you know, querying like a single vector, give me the nearest neighbors. I'm querying a thousand vectors, you know, give me the nearest neighbors for each of those thousand. That turns that like matrix vector multiplication into a matrix matrix multiplication, which is like a lot more efficient at using the, the, the resources, the computational resources, because it, it's able to like, you know, like reuse the data that you're like loading and traversing when doing that. And if there's one thing that uh, GPUs are great at, and that's, you know, the, the main reason, I guess, you know, why NVIDIA stock has been going up is because GPUs are really excellent matrix multiplication machines. And pretty much all of, you know, like AI deep learning, machine learning is effectively matrix multiplication. So they're really great at, you know, doing that. They're really fast at doing that. So there are a bunch of like matrix multiplications we have to do, and then a bunch of like scanning of like a list of uh, memory. Another thing that GPUs are good at, like relative to the CPUs, is that they have like really high memory bandwidth. You know, like the, the GPUs you can get, like the NVIDIA Maxwell class GPUs have, you know, like roughly 300 gigabytes a second of memory bandwidth, you know, compared to you know, kind of like top of the line, you know, like CPU machines where you'd, you know, probably be lucky to get, you know, like 50, 60, 80 gigabytes a second. So they're really great at scanning lots of memory. The thing that GPUs are not so good at is, you know, like the latency aspect, or if you had a bunch of like, you know, branching and codes or things like chasing, like linked list or, you know, things like that, you know, things which are very sequential in nature, GPUs are very bad at that sort of thing. But, you know, the things we need here are being able to scan lots of memory really fast and performing fast matrix multiplications uh, GPUs are great at. You know, so we, you know, like implemented this, you know, stuff on GPUs as well. And, you know, effectively it gets a 5 to, you know, like 10x speed up over like the CPU. But there's no reason why you can't use a distributed form of CPUs to do the same thing. And there's no reason why you can't actually, you know, put this on disk 
and then you know have you know to scan through a bunch of these lists on disk. But of course, you know, like it'll be a lot slower because you know a disk, you know, the speed at which you can scan through data on a disk is you know much lower than you know the speed at which a GPU can you know scan through its uh, main memory. The the time has flown by, and I want to zoom out and give a little bigger picture for how this fits in to Facebook, because this is a Facebook research project. You work out of New York at the uh, AI, I guess the kind of AI labs there. Can you explain how research at Facebook engages with the product engineering teams, how these kinds of breakthroughs make it into production? Yeah, so so I work for you know Facebook uh, AI research, you know, run by Yanlikun, who's uh, you know like prof- also a you know professor at New York University. You know, like our basic mandate from Mark Zuckerberg is to be a pure research lab. You know, like no one is you know like necessarily coming to us, you know, to say like, hey, can you you know get this feature in this product, or hey, we need you know like help with this particular thing. There's a sister team at Facebook called Applied Machine Learning or AML. Those are the people who are actually you know, work with a lot of the product teams to get, you know, like new, you know, like, you know, research components or, you know, like other such things like into actual products. But we also like internally at AI research, you know, we do actually, you know, like talk with, you know, like product teams, you know, because, you know, to have a research lab, which is actually, you know, successful, you, you know, need to have some practical applications at the end of the day, you know, for your work. And it's also, you know, quite fun and enjoyable to, you know, turn around, and, you know, like help a product team out with something. And, you know, like before you know it, it's, you know, released to, you know, like 2 billion people. But, you know, sort of like our primary focus is not necessarily to work on actual, like, you know, products, even though we do, you know, like do that occasionally. What are the opportunities for improvement for the similarity search project as it stands today? So from from a research perspective, you know, certainly the opportunities for improvement are, you know, better ways of making this like approximate search because, you know, it's lossy, it's approximate, it doesn't necessarily give you the right results, you know, better, you know, for the same speed or the same like memory consumption. You know, that's, that's you know, like there are a variety of like, you know, techniques that, you know, we're sort of like, you know, working on to do that. You know, there's the systems research perspective, you know, which is, you know, how can we implement this, you know, like, you know, these given algorithms, like more efficiently on like GPU or CPU. And then, you know, based upon that, it's, you know, getting, you know, like, well, you know, is there some like, you know, product group at, you know, Facebook or Instagram or, you know, like wherever that, you know, has a, has an issue that, you know, could be, you know, potentially solved, you know, like by like, you know, similarity search or, you know, something that could be improved, you know, like by, by similarity search. If there's somebody out there that's listening and let's say they're, they're a researcher and they're working in related areas, either in search or machine learning, something like that. What are some of the other novel contributions that come from your research that people might be able to gain by taking a look at your paper? So I think the the main thing and the thing I worked on the most was, you know, getting the the GPU implementation to work well. Like a lot of people have, you know, tried this sort of thing with, you know, like similarity search on like, you know, GPUs before. But one of the limiting factors is actually something, you know, quite mundane. It's, you know, say finding, you know, like being able to find, you know, what the, the K highest valued or like lowest valued, you know, like objects are. You think on the, like a CPU, you can have like a min heap or a max heap or, you know, something like that. It works like pretty well. But this sort of thing is like really hard to parallelize. You know, probably actually what I spent the most time on last year was not all of the, you know, this, you know, product quantization stuff or all these, you know, crazy similar research things. It's just, you know, getting this, you know, fundamental algorithm of like, how do you find like the top K or the bottom K, you know, valued, you know, things to work well in like a GPU? This has been, you know, the problem that, you know, people have had with a lot of like previous implementations because it's kind of like a fundamentally uh, more CPU friendly algorithm. You think like the naive manner would just be, oh, you take your value, all your items and you just sort of sort them and you take like, you know, the top 10 or a top 100. The non-naive way would be to use, you know, say like a min heap or a max heap. On a GPU, it, it definitely required a lot of, you know, effectively like hacking and trying to, you know, deal well with the GPUs like memory hierarchy and, you know, the fact that GPUs just have so much more like register memory than like, you know, CPUs. 
you know, to try to, you know, squeeze as much out of that, you know, to make that as fast as possible. And that's really the key, you know, spending like months of time working on that enabled like the similarity search, like on GPUs, you know, to really be like super fast and, you know, effectively, you know, gave us, you know, like the the fastest, you know, similarity, you know, search method. Okay, last question, because I know we're up against time. This is some really deep research. And whenever I interview people about serious research, particularly when it's in the industrial domain, I like to ask, what's the difference these days between academic research and industrial research? So I think, you know, like I I have to admit, I, you know, like I've never, you know, personally been in, you know, like academic uh, research setting, you know, but most of the people, you know, a good chunk of the people that have, you know, have you know, either been, you know, like professors or postdocs at, you know, various academic labs. Certainly, I think in, you know, like computer science and, you know, or, you know, more specifically in this case, like machine learning, applied math as it involves like machine learning, because there's so much interest from industry, there's a lot more crossover in terms of, you know, people who, you know, may spend part of their time in academia and part of their time in industry and, you know, like, you know, go back and forth. I think like a lot of the the research objectives have kind of like lined up in some ways between academia and, and, you know, like commercial research in these areas. But, you know, certainly like in a commercial research environment, at the end of the day, you know, like there are customers in-house, you know, like who are interested in your, your products, whereas in an academic environment, you may, you know, be more firmly concerned about, you know, say like, what are the underlying mathematical reasons for why a confident actually works, which is, you know, something which a lot of people are, you know, still interested in, you know, trying to figure out, you know, like in our particular lab, you know, we do have some people working on, you know, some of the more theoretical aspects, you know, but we also have a lot of people, you know, interested in, you know, like product applications and hearing about, you know, the problems that people have in an actual like industrial environment, which can, you know, feedback, you know, sort of like more quickly to our more academic work. Okay. Well, let's close with that. Jeff, thanks for coming on Software Engineering Daily. It's been really great talking to you. And this is a fascinating project. I, I really enjoyed reading the material around it. Yeah, thanks. Thanks a lot. You know, hopefully it wasn't, uh, <laughs> you know, it's definitely like a, you know, rather, you know, complicated, in-depth, you know, subject, but, you know, it's it's definitely an area which can, you know, have a lot of uh, real world uh, applications. Yeah, I mean, you know, some some days we do shows about, you know, what's the latest, like, fluffy thing you built with JavaScript. And some days it's, uh, okay, let's get into the weeds and talk about how you build a large-scale similarity search engine. So, you know, we have a variety of stuff. It's, it's perfectly fine to go deep. That sound, it sounds good. <laughs> okay, cool. <laughs>